Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make better cities. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up on this episode. If as architects, as designers, we keep on you know, thinking about beautifying traditional objects and so on, you know, then it's going to be oblivion. You know, then we're going to become more and more irrelevant. But you know, if as designers we really look at the key challenges of our time, then it can be utopian. It's that time of year again where Monocle magazine measures up Madrid, takes stock of Stockholm and zooms in on Zurich as we welcome the annual quality of life survey back for another round. And here on the podcast this week, we wanted to dig a little deeper into the city rankings to find out just what it is that makes these winning city outposts tick. We explore a land reclamation project, take part in an explosive annual tradition and even have a revealing riverside rendezvous too. So stay tuned to find out what makes our standout spot so good, as well as where made number one this year. That's all over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. Well, if you haven't already heard this week, our secret is out. And we can officially confirm that Copenhagen has taken top spot yet again in Monocle Magazine's annual quality of life rankings. And for how the Danish capital did it, well, there's no secret. The city has long been a shining light in many of the metrics that grab our attention here at The Urbanist. From putting pedestrians first and a push for ever more cycling to a metro system that continues to expand and any number of city-led environmental efforts, Copenhagen is a place that is preparing for the future. One forward-looking project in the city that has caught our eye is Lunetterholm, an artificial island rising out of the harbour which plans to house 35,000 people and protect the city from rising sea levels and climate change-induced storms too. Well, I'm joined now by Anne Skurvbro, CEO of Bay and Harven, the development company which is in charge of building Lynetta Home and which has even been using surplus soil from construction projects in Copenhagen to create it. And thank you for joining us. Let's start with the ambition for this project. What are you hoping to achieve here and what's actually required? Well, the ambition is actually to ensure that the flood protection that we need to do of Copenhagen, that we do it in a quite new and fantastic manner, saying that flood protection, which a lot of cities will need in the years to come, maybe we can do it in a quite different way. The ambition is to do it in a way so it's not only a dike, it's actually an island where you can have housing in the future, you'll have a big beach and park area towards the sea, and then also adding new housing districts on this flood protection island will be sustainable. You know, from top level of new sustainable ambitions, we have been quite good at doing that in Copenhagen. But of course, our ambition for the future is to go to the next level of uh, sustainable new urban districts. How do you build an island? What does it require? How do you even begin that process? Well, actually, it's not that difficult because when you look at the history of Copenhagen, we're actually very much like the Netherlands. You know, we're a city based on two islands. So we have actually been doing land reclamation and sort of building in the harbour for decades. So it's not that difficult. The difficult part in this project is not, you know, the technological solutions. It's the process. 
as many things these days. Is the process with the dialogue with citizens and do we need to do this now? Do we need to have this in my backyard? And, you know, is this really sustainable? And the debate on what are the facts actually when it comes to a project like this? Because as I see it, it's very difficult to have a debate on a problem that will come, you know, the need for storm flood protection. And on the other hand, also the need to do the long-term planning issues like we do in Copenhagen. When we think about Denmark and we think about Copenhagen, people seem to be, everyone gets their say, it's a bit more cooperative about how decisions get made. Does that make it difficult, actually, for pushing through big projects? It's just slow and cumbersome and you have to persuade a lot of people to get anything done. Well, I think when we started the Northern Harbour development, we started that also with a lot of dialogue with citizens. But I think it was easier to comprehend because you saw there was sort of a big harbour area, industrial brownfield site, which were more or less empty. So it was easier to comprehend and to have a dialogue. Okay, look at this. What would we like this to be in the future as a start of a dialogue and, you know, starting of the international architectural competition? And we had all this input. It's more difficult when you look into having a debate on a solution with the storm flood protection that although people know that we have some winter storms where you can see the sea level rising in the harbour, still saying, okay, but can we use the storm flood protection for a new housing district? It is more difficult. So for us, you know, just having the dialogue, we can see that it has really changed from the Northern Harbour dialogue to what we are doing now. You know, Danes are very based on trust. When people ask me, do you feel that the fact that there's a lot of critique, that it's because that you have failed? I said, yeah, we can always do better. But actually, it is also because the Danes and Copenhageners, when they have this critique, I guess it's because they know that we will listen. Basically, there is some sort of trust, and that's very important. And we need to take care of that trust. And maybe just as a final question, it's interesting when we talk to urbanist designers, planners, that it feels like we're coming up to some crunchy decisions for all cities, You that that desire to leave things as they are and not change and the need to deliver protection against environmental change at the same time. Do you think that for all cities, there's going to have to be a bit more of a a robust public conversation to get things done? Definitely. Actually, as we see it, the way the dialogue is on Lunetteholm at the moment, it's a bit more comparable to what we've seen in Germany, where there really has been a lot of dialogue on large projects like this. And of course, that has also been the case in Copenhagen. The metro city ring was tough dialogue, but there's some changes at the moment, definitely. What we do at the moment is to try to use new tools in order to ensure that we have a dialogue. Because in the Northern Harbour development, we invited everyone. But you know, when you have dialogue like that, quite often a lot of the people who have maybe a bit more negative towards development will join the conversation. So what we do now is to design a new process where we actually choose a board of citizens who can have a more direct impact on development so 66 citizens, which will be picked, you know, from a very statistic method based on OECD, deliberate democracy guidelines, something <laughs> to ensure that we have different citizens with different backgrounds to join the conversation on the future of the development in Lunetterhorn before we go on to the design and have architectural competitions. And I think that's important that we need to develop these methods 
for dialogue before going into design. What I find at the moment is that I'll have some architects who say, Anna, why haven't you done a vision, an architectural vision for the island? And I said, well, if we do that, the critique we will get is that now you're doing top-down planning, you don't listen to the citizens, you have done a vision of how this can be, but now you have narrowed down what actually could be the future of Lunetta Hunt. So we are going in the other direction, spending more time on the dialogue before we are going into competitions. And I really think that this is one of the big discussions in the years to come, that we need to take more care of our processes and the democratic dialogue before going into architectural competitions. Well, Anne, fascinating to hear you speak and perhaps a lesson for all sorts of cities around the world who are not so good at the dialogue bit. So thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. And to hear more reasons why Copenhagen topped the charts in this year's survey, be sure to pick up a copy of the latest issue of Monocle magazine, which is on newsstands now. Coming in second place this year was a city we are particularly fond of here at Monocle. But while Zurich's sensible style and organisational prowess make for a comfortable place to call home, there is plenty of room for some Swiss zaniness too. Here to tell us about just one of Zurich's strange public celebrations, this one to mark the end of winter, is Monocle's Desiree Bandley. Zurich is known for its tendency to follow law and order, but at the end of April, the city erupts in a festive weekend for Sechseleuten that ends with the highlight, the burning of the burg on Monday evening. To understand why young and old equally enjoy waiting for sometimes up to 40 minutes to see the head of a massive snowman explode to determine the next summer, let's dig a bit deeper into its origins. The tradition of Sechseleuten in its present form as a custom of the guilds, was established around 1900. And since 1903, the burning of the Burg has taken place at its current location near Bellevue. The square has officially been called Sechseleutenplatz since 1948. For more than 100 years, the process has remained the same. The festivities start with parades of guilds, the cutest of which is by far the one with the children on Saturday. And after a long walk through the city with people lining the sides, handing the members of the guilds flowers, they all end up at the Sechseleutenplatz. There, preparations have started days before, bringing tons of sand and even more wood to build a pyre for the book. And there he is, 10 meters above the ground, he stands, waiting for the guilds and onlookers to arrive. The dimensions of the book itself are also worth mentioning. It's a 3.4 meter tall, 80 kilogram wooden rectal filled with over 100 explosives. The head alone has an impressive circumference of 1.8 meters. The burg itself looks like a snowman, reminiscent of its original purpose, to mark the end of winter. Once ignited, the burg burns while equestrian groups of specific guilds ride around it, three times each. And yes, there is an outrage if anyone dares try for a fourth lap. The guilds play the Sechseleuten march whilst the crowd anxiously observes the growing flames. The book must be burned at 6 o'clock on the third Monday in April. A tradition anchored in the name of the event, Sechseleuten means the ringing of bells at 6 o'clock. 
it must be the third Monday of the month, so as to ensure the event follows the equinox. And at six, the bells used to ring to signal the end of the working day. Contrary to the Swiss stereotype though, not everything always goes according to plan. And there have been a few rather unfortunate events. In 1944, the book fell into the lake whilst burning down. And in 2006, he got kidnapped. He was later found unharmed, don't you worry. In 1921, a youngster even decided to prematurely burn down the book on the day of the event. But the replacement book? Yes, we always have one ready just in case, was there to save the day and the summer. Last year, the Berg had a little extra ingredient in his stomach, a green corona cell. And this seems to have done the trick, as this year's festivities went ahead without any corona restrictions. The Berg did take his time though, and only blew his head off after nearly 40 minutes. Given that the average time is around 15, that signals a cold and wet summer is surely awaiting us. But for once, the prediction for the season ahead didn't matter too much. Zürchers were too busy enjoying their unique festivities without restrictions, gathering around the barbecue next to the Burg until late at night in hope of a happy, likely chilly summer to come. My thanks there to Monocle's Desiree Bandley for that report. We're in the Finnish capital next to visit our number four ranked city. Helsinki is becoming something of a climate superstar of late, with emission targets being brought forward rather than pushed back, and plenty of enthusiasm from City Hall to make the city a global leader when it comes to the question of climate. Italian architect Carlo Ratti has further strengthened this mission recently with a proposal to decarbonise the city's heating by building four artificial islands that would function as both heat reservoirs as well as urban havens for the nature-loving Finns. Our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, met with Professor Ratti, who began by explaining the background to this adventurous project. Usually cities look at best practices. They look at what other cities have done and just uh, continue with successful recipes. However, today, if you want to meet uh, the big challenges and you know, the goals that we, we, we cities set to themselves for decarbonization, for instance, we cannot follow best practices anymore. We need to find a new way to innovate. And in this case, for me, it was interesting that the mayor decided to pick a, a procedure which is very similar to the XPRIZE in the US, you know, the XPRIZE Foundation or kind of some kind of moonshot competition, where actually over 250 people participated from all over the world, 10 finalists, and then, uh, as I mentioned, the, the winners. And so the Hot Heart was one of the winners of, uh, of that competition as a way to decarbonize the city, in particular by finding a very cheap solution for energy storage, for heat storage, something we've been calling thermal batteries. Ratti's solution for decarbonizing Helsinki's urban heating is to build hot water reservoirs for storing electricity. And these hot water reservoirs would also serve as warm forest islands that the locals could use for recreational purposes. We can actually heat Helsinki and many other cities with renewable energies, but the problem with renewables, as we all know, is that they are intermittent. Sometimes we produce too much, sometimes we produce too little. And so how do we solve it? Well, we solve it with batteries. However, if you use traditional batteries, the cost is still very, very high. So in this case, because we are dealing with district heating, we thought about something like a floating 
hot water reservoir where actually electricity is turning to heat uh, when uh, the prices are not too high and then that's being used to heat up the city. And that's the infrastructure but on the top then we thought about how this could become an attraction for Helsinki and so our initial proposal is this kind of four tropical forests Every time I've been here in Finland, you know, going to the forest is something very embedded in local culture. And we said, why don't we use just 0.5% of the heat in the reservoirs in order to change the climate and make it into, again, these four tropical forests from uh, Central America, South America, Africa, and Asia. But more importantly, as a center for learning about climate change and infrastructure for decarbonizing our cities. As a Finn, as a local, I have to say this sounds wonderful, both in terms of the climate change solution and then as somebody who might potentially be able to go and visit those places. But is this something that has ever been done before on this similar scale? Yeah, well, the principle has been used before. For instance, even in Helsinki, there's a big uh, hot water reservoir that was uh, inaugurated last year that's underground. But uh, like this, floating, which is actually becomes much cheaper, this has never been done before on, on such a scale. But we are we're very excited. You know, we've been working with uh, many teams of engineers, with multinational companies, you know, with Helen, uh, with uh, ENEL, with Schneider Electric, with Danfoss. And it all seems to make sense. And, you know, if all is according to what we are seeing on paper now the you know the energy landscape is changing very quickly also because what's happening with the war and increasing prices and so on but you know if uh, all what we're seeing on paper is confirmed we should be able to heat Helsinki at 10% less than today in a totally carbon free way so to pay back the investment and everything else with the right rate of return in a way that's uh, carbon free Ratti believes that cities need to follow Helsinki's example and look for new solutions to decarbonize Usually cities, you know, when they want something, will uh, do an RFP and they will ask people, you know, they will look for people who've done the same thing already many, many, many times because that's a way to minimize risk. But, uh, of course, if we do this, we keep on repeating lessons from the past. We keep on locking the future into the past, so that's not going to take us to where we need to be, for instance, in terms of decarbonization. So I really believe the cities need to look at new ways of doing things. And, and this example from Helsinki to me was very interesting. I remember from phase one, out of the 250 people, we didn't have all the names, but people asking questions on the webinar were from the Atomic Energy Agency from China, you know, really from all over the world. And I think you know, that's a way we can come together, share ideas, and innovate faster than if we look just at the past. What are the next steps? I mean, when will it be actually realized? We've been really having a lot of meetings both with uh, the city of Helsinki and also with uh, Helen, the utility company. And actually some of the meetings are going to happen in uh, this week. So the plan is to start with a smaller one, a smaller one where we can test everything. Also, you know, the people can get familiar with it. We can also look at the programming on the top of the floating island. So imagine like a smaller one is a test. Uh, and uh, I know that Helen is planning later this year to do a more detailed feasibility for the bigger one, so for the full solution. Bearing in mind the, the city of Helsinki example of this urban heating competition, do you think in general we as societies, when we look for solutions to the climate crisis, do you think we have really unleashed the potential of architects and architecture in this, or can more be done? Yeah, I th- certainly think that much more can be done. I think actually architecture today, if I had to define today's moment in architecture, I will use the word of a great architect and inventor from the past century, Buckminster Fuller. And you know, Buckminster Fuller in, once you know, was talking about uh, utopia or oblivion. And I think that if 
as architects, as designers, we keep on, you know, thinking about beautifying traditional objects and so on, you know, then it's going to be oblivion, you know, then we're going to become more and more irrelevant. But, you know, if as designers, we really look at the key challenges of our time, and actually climate change is one of them, but think about segregation in our cities, think about, you know, many of the other big challenges we, we are facing, then it can be, like Buckminster Fuller would have said, utopia. So I really think that architecture has to redefine its perimeter, has to redefine its toolkit in order to really engage with the big problems of our time. My thanks there to Carla Ratti in conversation with Monocle's Petri Butsov. Next up, we head to number seven on our list, Vienna, to explore some misconceptions about Austrian inhibitions. You might not guess that the Viennese like going about naked, but they do. And in summer, many beaches along the Danube turn into bare-cheeked paradises. Nudism is so ingrained in Viennese culture that is rarely discussed, but if you do press someone about it, they'll tell you that it's not just about stripping off your clothes, it's about casting away urbanity and getting back to nature. Monocle's Alexei Korolev has more. I just enjoy being uh, in that situation, I must say. Like um, getting naked, being totally free and um, enjoying a swim without having wet clothes on my body when I step out of the water. and <laughs> It's just a feeling of freedom. That feeling has a name, FKK. The acronym stands for Freikörperkultur, literally free body culture. And when the mercury rises in Vienna, the free bodies come out in force. What sort of people are these people? All sort of people. So it's, it's anybody. It's it could everybody. be anybody. Yeah? It could be anybody. From, but yeah, everybody. It's from um, young to old and from, I don't know, from the manager of, or the CEO of a company to whatever position you could have in, in life. Yeah, it is everybody. Yeah. And that, that makes it so interesting because the same thing, um, if they wear their clothes and you meet them in public, you kind of have a feeling maybe, or at least an idea um, where they come from. If you meet them naked, it doesn't make a difference. Actually, what do you do? I am in the management board of uh, education institution. My name is Florian. Or Florian <laughs> in German. Vienna has many riverside spots designated FKK, but the undisputed nerve centre is the Danube Island, or Donauinsel, the city's biggest recreation area. And that's where I meet Florian. There are two different parts of the Donauinsel in the north and in the south, with a big sign on the pathway when you understand you can get naked, and um, that's the place to come. Yeah. Right. FKK began life in the late 19th century as part of a wider Lebensreform or life reform movement in what was then the German Empire. The reformists promoted organic food, sexual liberation and a simpler way of life, and nudity was seen as a key part of it. In the 20th century, the idea was briefly hijacked by the Nazis, who used it to showcase good German bodies, while in post-war East Germany, it was held up as an example of communist equality. But for Florian and other FKK enthusiasts in Vienna, it's just about having a good time. As soon as you get naked, there are no boundaries somehow. It's just, it, it gets much easier. The tension is gone and you, you just connect to each other quite easily. What sort of things do you talk about? 
we're waiting. <laughs> so I mean, it, it, it really is just normal life, right? It is like normal life. Yeah. yeah, and you talk about everything, maybe not about the private parts, but you talk about everything, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually very interesting. That as soon as you get naked, that whole sexual thing is kind of not in the focus anymore. Which is kind of paradox, but that's the way it is. It's not. It's not. That's not the thing. Although I must say, many people I probably would not recognize it. With clothes on. Yeah, because yeah. you look so different when you're naked, in my eyes at least. And sometimes it's really funny when, at the end of the day, when you pack your stuff and get dressed, it's just like another person somehow. Yeah. <laughs> For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Finally today, we head to Vancouver, a city that has been steadily climbing our rankings over the years, and this time has managed to crack the top 10. So what is it about this West Coast jewel in Canada's crown that secured its place at number nine in our list? Well, let's hear now from our man in Canada, Thomas Lewis, who sung Vancouver's praises during our selection process. Our very own Tom Edwards caught up with him a little earlier. Vancouver's, you know, regularly made the quality of life survey at Monocle for years and years by this stage. And what I found over the years from covering various cities here in Canada is that, you know, our listeners and our readers kind of here in Canada, in those cities, do hold both their cities to a pretty high standard, but also hold those who cover them to a pretty high standard too. So if we say something that's a little bit off, we'll hear about it pretty quickly and be sort of put in our place, I suppose, to put that in the nicest way possible. But I was in Vancouver, I suppose, the first time I went since the pandemic began was was last summer. And living here in Toronto, Tom, you know, we had one of the longest city lockdowns, depending on which measure you look at. Anyway, in the world and going to Vancouver felt like you know a breath of fresh air to put it lightly there was a real energy there there were lines outside the nightclubs and the pubs and the bars and it just felt like there was a real embracing that things were open again and I think you know if you look at other Canadian cities around the country that wasn't necessarily the case for lots of them and I think there's a sense of being nimble in Vancouver and in the province of British Columbia more broadly that I think has really been a model that sort of caught our eye so that's why we thought it was good to have it in the top 10 this year in the quality of life survey tom where these cities are regarded as great places to work and live lots of people move there and one of the challenges therefore is how these big urban centers deal with increasing population growth but vancouver looks to have plenty of plans to ensure that it takes that kind of ongoing expansion in its stride Yes, well, it's trying at least to be forward-looking about this. And I think if you look at the last census here in Canada, it was regions right around Vancouver that are the fastest growing. And that, of course, is going to bring pressures for the city itself. And I think if you look at some of the infrastructure projects that are coming up in Vancouver, of course, with lots of major 
generation-defining infrastructure projects. There's obviously a lot of debate, perhaps opposition, that comes around those. But I think, you know, the more clear-eyed view of some of these projects in Vancouver is that it really is a very forward-looking way of meeting the demands that are going to come. And it is very heartening to see a city hall be so forward-looking about it. And, you know, welcoming people to come and live there with open arms in a sort of tangible way is something that I think is worth taking note of and is something that means that the next few years should be quite good ones to be able to meet the increasing population, the number of people who want a piece of the Vancouver life for themselves. Throughout the top 25, there are still could-do-betters, little hints and tips from our humble crew to suggest ways that these cities can get even better. And one of the ones that struck me as interesting is, for Vancouver, it's to loosen its collar a little and, and maybe you look at things like lifting restrictions on drinking alcohol in the city's parks. As an inveterate street drinker, you would presumably concur with that? <laughs> Absolutely. Very close to my heart here, Tom, as you rightly note. I would say, you know, we did make this note in our entry for Vancouver. The city's parks really became sort of a, a very important part of life for cities across the country during lockdown measures. And there's a lot of frustration going that the city's councillors can't really wake up that people are going to do this anyway and are going to do it responsibly and enjoy the city that they are residents of and they contribute to the life of too. So in Vancouver it is worth noting there is a pilot project underway at the moment that is has taken a few parks, it's expanded recently but taken a good handful of the city's parks and made it legal to go and have a drink there, to go and have a picnic and there's a lot of hope that this is the first step really to making this permanent. So yes we have put it as a sort of loosen the collar little bit in Vancouver but you know it is worth noting that there are some very positive moves in that direction already so maybe Tom if you and I ever find each other in Vancouver one day we can raise and clink a glass together in the years to come there in one of the city's fine array of public parks. Well that's nice of you but save a drink for me too guys. That was Thomas Lewis there in conversation with Monocle's Tom Edwards. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Be sure to pick up a copy of the latest edition of Monocle magazine to uncover the full list of our top 25 cities to live in, available on newsstands now, or simply subscribe at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Denmark's own Efterklang with Scandinavian Love. Thank you for listening, city lovers.